The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to April's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up, we have an exclusive interview with Jim Catchaside from Pioneer Great Britain about the future of Curo. We give you some hints and tips and also discuss acoustic issues when it comes to your home cinema audio. We also take a look at two new audio technologies from Dolby. Plus we take an opportunity to discuss the new technologies and products we've had in for review recently. So as normal on the AV Forums podcast, I usually introduce our pundits at this point, but this week we're going to do things slightly different and cut to the chase straight away. And I'd like to welcome Jim Catcherside, who's the product manager for Pioneer Great Britain. Hello, Jim. How are you, Phil? How are you doing, mate? I'm very good, and thank you very much for taking the time to join us today on the podcast. There's lots of questions on the forums um, since the announcement was made a few weeks ago um, about Pioneer and Plasma. But can you give us a rundown of what's happened and likely to happen from here? Yeah, of course I can, Phil. I mean, uh, obviously I've been keeping an eye on the forums and reading some of the things that are on there. As you can imagine, um, you know, being a spokesperson for for Pioneer in the UK is one thing, but obviously speaking on behalf of the the company as a whole, particularly on the internet uh, where it can be read around the world, is something that that we have to be very careful with and uh, I've had to get permission to do that. But basically, just to just to you know give you the the bottom line and what the announcement was, which I'm sure you're all aware of anyway, um, we, we've announced that we're going to actually cease the manufacturing, so that's the complete production uh, and sale of our Kuro TV products uh, by globally by March 2010. And when we say Kuro products, that includes our plasma televisions and monitors, our LCD televisions that we introduced last year, and indeed even our front projector uh, as well. Uh, and that will start to happen, as I say around the world and will actually finally withdraw by March 2010. Now for us in the UK, if we consider our current forecast information the way the the business is going at the moment, we're probably realistically going to run out by Christmas time, if not just a bit before at the end of this year. Uh, It's fair to say, and it's quite ironic uh, with the market conditions the way they are at the moment, you can imagine the demand's pretty high. Um, Everybody wants to get a Kuro while they still can. So Jim, with all these people... Um, obviously going out and trying to get a cure. How confident are you that the warranties will be honoured and what assurances can you give our members who have recently bought a TV that they will be covered? I don't think there's any question at all that it won't be. I mean, Pioneer's always stood behind its products. Uh, There's no question that a product warranty is not going to be honoured now or in the future, as long, obviously, as the conditions of the warranty have been complied with and there's nothing uh, odd there. There's no reason that product won't be uh, looked after in the normal way at all. And let's say after three years someone's set fails and they've got a five-year warranty, will Pioneer be in a position to replace that TV or will there be another outcome for a situation like that? Well, first of all, Phil, I think you've got to really consider, and I think it's fair to say that Pioneer products are generally really, really reliable. and We've got a great reputation for reliability. And I think that's largely due to the choice of parts that we use and obviously the excellent build of the quality of the products. Um, but on the rare occasion that something does go wrong, normally in our experience, it can be repaired. Um, I mean, it's very, very unusual for a product to have to be written off because it can't be repaired. But in that unlikely event, then obviously come that time, we're going to have to look at those individual circumstances and individual products uh, when it happens. Uh, and we'll have to make that appropriate solution and come up with a solution when that happens. 
So how long are Pioneer going to hold on to spare parts for the, for the last few generations of the sets? Well, we've always maintained good availability of product parts. I mean, that's never been a question. Uh, I think, again, anybody that's ever had a product service has, has normally had no problem at all with getting the parts. And we really don't anticipate that the recent announcement will have any impact at all on availability of parts, either through our usual spares or indeed our service agents and service network. Uh, it shouldn't be a problem at all. Now, this is going to be uh, a difficult question for you, but is Kiro really dead? Uh, there's rumours out there that the name uh, might be used in the future on products that meet Kuro standards. Is there any truth in that rumour? Well, I mean, I've got a Kuro number plate on my car, so I really hope it isn't dead. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, we, we still own the Kuro brand name. Uh, and at the moment, you know, Pioneer are really considering the best way to use that in the future. Um, but really, at the moment, that's probably about all I can say about the actual brand name itself. Um, it's a good point, though. You know, Kuro, Kuro stands for something at the end of the day. And I think it's, it's interesting that a lot of the technologies that we saw uh, on our plasma products, actually, some of those are starting to show up on the Blu-ray products this year, uh, particularly when it comes to processing and things like that. And that's directly from Kuro. So it'll be interesting to see how we use the brand name in the future. Uh, I think it does stand for something, though. I think it'll be important to try and retain it and use it. There's many out there, Jim, who are pointing fingers and saying that aiming for the high-end plasma market was probably your downfall. Is that the case, and are there things that should have been done differently, or was it purely just market conditions? Well, I think, to be fair, Phil, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's a combination of things. Uh, you know, in order to make the best picture in the market, you know, at the end of the day, it requires a massive amount of financial investment, and as you can imagine, a continued uh, push and drive in research and development. And to be fair, going you know year on year, we've done a pretty good job of that. Um, you know, significant technology improvements, massive jumps in picture, picture quality every year. Um, you know, things like deep waffle rib structure, pure drive, the direct color filter, and in more recent times, of course, the crystal emissive layer. Um, you know, it names just a few of the things that we've done, and we've done all of that to be fair against historic TV brands that. You've got to remember at the end of the day, it's significantly bigger uh, and they've got far more money and financial size than little old Pioneer. I think actually one of your own forum members put it very well in one of the threads, you know, if one of Pioneer's TV competitors could have made a better product than a Pioneer Kuro Plasma TV, then don't you think they would have done? I'm sure they would. Uh, or maybe their attention has obviously been more on volume. But at the end of the day, Phil, I don't think we're going to apologise for making what we believe are the best products. Um, that's, that's part of our ethos. Uh, and in an instance like this, we simply couldn't continue in a business not making enough profit. Uh, when the recession hit as well, the situation's just become unsustainable. And I mean, you've only got to look around you, to be fair, to, to see what the recession's causing virtually everywhere, not just in our industry, but in other industries around the world. These are really difficult times. It's a, it is a shame. Now, there's a lot of talk on the forums, as you would imagine, about Pioneer working closer with Panasonic and allowing Panasonic to use some of your technology. There's even rumours of a joint Elite Kuro TV line in the future. Now, is this just wishful thinking on the, on the part of enthusiasts, or are there possibilities that this may happen? This is probably uh, probably a difficult question. I mean, if I'm honest, I really can't comment on it specifically. Uh, all I can confirm is at the moment we will continue to retain all the display technologies and patents that we've got. And I don't think anybody, to be honest, would be surprised if other manufacturers weren't interested in licensing some of those proprietary technologies. But I'm not in a position to, to discuss that at the moment, unfortunately. There are many worried that it's not just the TV line um, that's being stopped and with the present climate that there's a lot of rumours that Pioneer in general may disappear. I mean, what would you say to that? 
I think, again, I think at the end of the day, you've got to consider that like any other industries, uh, you know, many electronic companies are struggling um, and announcing record losses and redundancies during this economic slowdown. We're not any exception, Phil, to be honest, at the end of the day. Uh, however, at the end of the day, we've also got some very strong expertise and a heritage in creating high-quality products backed up by first-class distribution and service. So arguably, by eliminating this unprofitable part of our business, you know, the display business, which, to put it in perspective, accounts only really for about just under 15% of our global turnover, it should provide a very solid platform going forward for Pioneer's future growth. You've got to remember at the end of the day, Phil, in relative terms, Pioneer's only been doing TVs fairly recently. You know, we entered the TV market really only about eight years ago. And in reality, that's a really short piece of our overall history. You know, first and foremost, we were founded by uh, Matsumoto-san, you know, back in the 30s as a speaker manufacturer. You know, he introduced a little dynamic speaker called the A8. In fact, uh, it's quite ironic that we predate most of the uh, well-known speaker brands that you could probably name and recommend. Um, Just because in more recent years your attention has been drawn to our TVs, you shouldn't forget that during the same time we've been making some fantastic AV amps and products. Stereo products like G-Clef with uh, our CD players and SACD, the fabulous little A9 amp, plus some fantastic speakers like the Tadra RDXs. In fact, speakers that will happily challenge some of the reference models from our competitors. It's almost a shame, and I think we touched on this before, that we've got this ridiculous and I think unjustified prejudice against uh, things like Japanese speakers in the UK. I guess part of my job now, uh, and it'll be a bit of a challenge going forward, will be to try and uh, put that straight. I think also, finally, Phil, you've got to remember that at the end of the day, uh, you know, another part of our heritage has been our optical disc engineering. I'm sure that a lot of the AV forum members out there would agree. Uh, you know, we used to make the best laser disc players in the world, uh, an era that we've continued uh, through the, the DVD era. Um, and, of course, we brought that right up to date now with our Blu-ray players as well. You know, range and award-winning blue, a range of award-winning Blu-ray players currently topped off by the uh, recently introduced BDPLX91. So rather than disappear, uh, I'm sure that with this renewed focus, we'll see some very exciting new products coming out of Pioneer in the future. Just to take it back to TVs a little bit, Jim, do you think Mm. the TV market in the UK is going to suffer in the current climate and are enthusiasts going to lose out to bottom lines and, you know, supermarket aimed technology? You know, I'm an enthusiast myself, Bill, and, you know, I've been in this industry a little while and I really hope it doesn't suffer too much. Um, But obviously it's a combination of the economic climate and both the current and projected trends and the way things are going that have played a major factor in what we've done in our decision to withdraw from the market. Uh, At the end of the day, we're in a recession and I guess everyone will have to cut their cloth according to size. Having said all of that, we'll continue with our premium strategy, um, you know, which we obviously really started in earnest with uh, Plasma. And with both our current and future AV products, uh, we'll continue with that. I think the same will always apply, basically. Yeah, and that is what I've said many, many times before. You get what you pay for at the end of the day. And, of course, what you can afford at the end of the day. And how long do you think us as enthusiasts will have to wait to get a TV that is going to be able to compete or even better what the present Curos can do? Again, as an enthusiast, and if I'm absolutely honest, I'm not saying it will never happen. Um, although I also appreciate your interest in accurate display and ISF measurement, I think it's fair to say that probably we're going to be uh, putting products up against Kuro or 9G Kuro for sure, the last generation, for a little while yet. Uh, and I'm sure as an enthusiast of your calibre, Phil, I bet you're still going to be measuring against it uh, for the next little while as well. I think we'll have to wait and see. And just to wrap up today, Jim... Um is there any likelihood that we'll ever see a Pioneer TV again? 
I think one thing I've always learned, and uh, or learned along the way, is you should never say never. But to be honest, I very much doubt we'll see another TV from Pioneer anytime soon. Um, you know, again, you know, considering I've been at Pioneer now almost 18 years, uh, you know, my experience is one thing you can be sure of, though. I bet you're going to see some great products coming out from a brand with a great, you know, history when it comes to things like innovation. Like I said before, these in these interviews before, Phil, you know, Pioneer is a little bit different than a lot of the other big electronic brands. We're a little bit more niche, um, a little bit more specialist, and we've got some great people, great planners, engineers, and designers with an enthusiasm and commitment to making not only the best products they can, but also putting them up against the competition and making sure they are the best and pushing the boundaries everywhere they can. I mean, that's obviously clear with our TVs like Kuro, but it's also, to be fair, and as we've touched on, clear on a lot of the other products we do. And I suppose ultimately, at the end of the day, that's part of the true spirit of being, you know, what is a pioneer? Well, Jim, it's uh, it's been great to uh, obviously catch up with you again on the podcast. Thank you very much for your time. And thank you for being brave enough to uh, to answer the questions that the forum members have. I know there was a lot of difficult uh, questions in there. So thank you very much for your time. You know, it's always a pleasure, Phil. You know it is, mate. Cheers, then. Thank you. The highest definition. 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 This is the AV Forums Podcast. So our thanks to Jim Catterside for his thoughts there on what's happening with the Pioneer side of things. And our regular pundits are now here, David McKenzie, AV Forums Hardware Reviewer, and Neil Davidson from Genesis Technologies and AV Doctor. Guys, I think quickly what we should talk about um, straight away is obviously the interview and, and what we've taken from it and I guess the the most important thing that I took away from it was uh, there was not a lot said about the future of Cural. It um it seemed quite an open-ended uh, ending. <laughs> Maybe a brighter future than we think. Um it's it's difficult to say it's it's certainly true that there could be some commercial interest in the Cural brand from other companies. It seems to have been a very good and powerful brand. So let's just wait and see if it, it does reappear in the future. And I suppose uh, the big thing there as well is, is the warranty side of things, Neil. And um, obviously it, it's obviously good to have it from the horse's mouth that those warranties will be uh, uh, will be honoured. Well, that's one thing that people really shouldn't be too concerned about. Um, we're quite lucky in Europe that there is fairly strong um, laws and regulations uh, surrounding provision of warranties. Um, and certainly a company as large as Pioneer uh, will need to make sure that they have parts and so on available for at least the next five years. So I, I really think that people shouldn't be too concerned about that if they're looking to buy a TV just now. And like Jim said, that's if it breaks anyway. Yep, um, all valid points. So uh, it was good for Jim to come along and uh, and speak to us this month, so thanks to him for that. So moving on to talk about audio, and uh, we posted a poll on Navy Forums a little while back, and we just had under a 1,000 replies and basically we asked what effects does your room have on the sound quality in your home cinema the choices were very little to no effect moderate effect quite a large effect and massive effect and neil uh, we had some surprising results there yeah it was interesting to look at the the results of the poll in particular to see that so many people felt that the room had no effect uh, on the sound that they hear That, that certainly was surprising and of course Obviously, that was a, a little bit of a trick question that we put in the poll there just to try and trip people up because obviously it's to try and generate some chat. And, and, and the case is that when you put a loudspeaker in any room, you are going to have problems, aren't you? Well, it's it's interesting. Let's not necessarily say acoustic problems, um, but the sound that you hear is a combination of the sound that comes directly from the speaker 
and the sound that reflects off the walls, the ceiling, and the floor. Um, we call that the, the combined response. Now, in every single room, you're always going to have some form of combined response. And truthfully, in most cases, uh, what that does is it has some detrimental effects on the sound. So I think it's pretty safe to say for most people, um, I certainly include myself with, with my living room system, uh, you're going to have a massive effect of the room on the actual sound that you hear. Whether that is good or bad is a different question, but certainly it's going to be a big effect. Um, one of the things that's important to remember is that the room will play just as much part in the sound that you hear as the equipment that you put into the room. It's almost 50-50 between the two. Um, so people should never overlook the room when they're looking to spend uh, big money on upgrades of AV receivers or speakers. Um, they could equally get some big benefits from looking at the room as well. And I guess this ties into obviously what, what we always go on about when it comes to picture is that the environment's a very important thing, especially um, projection-wise and so on. So I, I guess the room is the most important thing that, that people really need to take stock of before they even think about the equipment that they're going to put in there. The, the room is going to play a huge part in the design um, of any system. For example... Uh, with all of the new projectors that we have with such low contrast ratio, uh, sorry, with such high contrast ratios um, and low black levels, um, oftentimes people will not be able to, to get the full benefit of those in their rooms. So what that means is, of course, that the room is going to play a big part in the equipment choice. Um, and it's equally true, as you've just said there, Phil, for the sound. Uh, if you have a very hard room, so by hard we mean uh, bare walls and uh, no carpets or anything like that, uh, you're going to have a huge impact, you're going to have an echoey sound, um, and that's just something that's in the room, and it could be thought of beforehand and give a much better result. So, Neil, we've, we've identified the room as being a, a very important uh, aspect of a home cinema. So what would your advice be as a custom installation uh, advisor on what people should be looking at? Well, again, Phil, that's actually a very open-ended question, and it really depends on how people are going to use a room. I have to say that I'm not a believer in black room cinemas unless it really is a dedicated cinema. I know myself that I would find it very difficult to spend my whole time in such a dark room. So the first of all, the question that people need to ask themselves is the primary purpose of this room to be a cinema, an entertainment space, or is it to be a room to spend time in with my family? And I think that's the first thing that's going to drive the design decisions from then on. Then as you look uh, at video, of course, darker colours in the room uh, will help greatly with contrast ratio um, and the overall sort of definition that you can get into the system. Most of us can't afford to have six or 7,000 lumen projectors uh, to overcome ambient light, so certainly darkening the room down will help a lot there. And then as far as audio goes, what you want to look at first of all is what scope do I have for positioning speakers to get the optimal performance from the equipment I'm buying in the room? And then what can I do to the room itself to, uh, to improve the sound from those speakers um, that I've bought? So a few elements that people can look at that don't take a lot of time, but can really make a huge, a huge impact, uh, not only in the performance of the system that they're buying, um, but also prevent them from buying a system where they will never really fully achieve the performance that that system is capable of. And of course, we always talk about standards, but it's a well-known fact that 
in, in the audio world that there's not a great deal of standards that say what things should sound like and so on. But um, there are standards there for setting up a, a 5.1, 7.1, 7.2 system. So we all live in small living rooms in the UK. So it, it, what would your advice be to people who want to try and follow the standards as, as closely as possible? Well, just to pick up on that, there has actually been a lot of work on standards um, in audio. It's an area where there is still a huge amount of research going on. But CEDIA, so an organisation that AV Forums is, is now um, showing on its website, um, actually has a set of recommended practice documents that provide standards for, for custom install professionals to follow when they're designing residential audio systems. Um, now, if you know where to look, you can find uh, some of the standards that are referred to in there, and that will help you to, to really get a decent performance out of your system. So some of the basic standards that people can look at, Phil, um, the first one and the easiest one for most people to measure is the, the sound level from each speaker. Um, normally, we'd look for each speaker to be producing 75 decibels when you're playing the test tone. Um, another uh, standard that people can look at um, and try and follow is in the speaker positioning. Now, Dolby has some excellent information about that on their website um, that people can go on and look at. Once you get beyond those two relatively straightforward things, um, it becomes more difficult uh, for people to, to measure their sound performance. It's things like the reverberation time of the room uh, and the frequency response of the system. Uh, you need to have uh, tools that will enable you to measure those things. Um, there are some excellent tools available for measuring frequency response. They do take a, a little bit of effort to get into, um, but they're fantastic. But once you start to look at things like reverb and so on, um, you really need to uh, have a pretty good idea about what you're doing um, and what I would recommend, truthfully, for people who are interested in getting the very best out of their system is that they consider uh, an actual audio calibration just in the same way that you can get video calibration. Um, it's possible to get audio calibration services as well. Now, Neil, there's, uh, there's lots of new technology hitting AV amplifiers these days. Uh, we have Yamaha's version, Denon's version, uh, and we also have Odyssey, which is turning up on, on quite a few AV amplifiers these days. How useful are these, and how difficult is it to to get over to users just how to use them? Well, um, first of all, technology is, is usually a good thing. Sometimes, uh, of course, the manufacturers <laughs> go all out for technology and forget that, that sound quality is still important. Um, but if we ignore that, if, if you have a good product, usually you can make the product sound better through the use of one of these automated setup systems um, like Odyssey or um, like the Pioneer or Yamaha systems, as you've just mentioned. Now, if they are done properly, these systems can have really, really big and very positive benefits um, on the sound. Um, if you do them incorrectly, though, or rather than even saying incorrectly, if you get unlucky with the positioning of the microphone, you can find that the results are much, much worse uh, than you would have had before. Um, unfortunately, it is still a little bit of a lucky dip with the, the more limited um, setup programs uh, that if you just get the mic positioning wrong, it can have a terrible impact. In general, though, I think that it's hugely positive uh, to the sound to run one of those automated routines. 
And if you do have the opportunity to double check manually, well, of course, that's the, the ideal situation um, because then you'll know if the machine has made a mistake that you can go back and run it again and hopefully get a better result the second time. And one of the things I pick up from the threads that I read with regards to, say, Odyssey and the position in the microphone is that there seems to be a, a few misconceptions of, of where exactly to, to put the microphone to get those readings. So what would your advice be, have, you know, having played with the Pro system and, and being an installer for that and other EQ systems, what's your advice for the correct positioning of the microphone? Well, I, I've used Odyssey hundreds of times, um, to be honest with you. I have to say mainly uh, the, the Multi-EQ Pro uh, type stuff, which allows up to 32 measurement positions. Now, more relevant, I would have said, for, for most owners of AV receivers, um, I like to do eight positions um, with an Odyssey. Uh, and usually what I will do is I will start off at the center of the listening position. Um, and the reason for that is the first Odyssey measurement is what is used to determine the speaker levels and the speaker distances. So that's quite an important measurement. Um, and then what I do is uh, I tend to do uh, three measurements along the, the, the rear of the listening area, um, then another three measurements along the front. Um, but then what I like to do is, is change the height of the microphone up or down and move it quite far forward, um, maybe even as much as a meter forward of the listening area and do another couple of measurements. Um, and that tends to give the, the, the system the best sort of picture of the room um, one of the things that you must remember with these automated setup systems is that they are trying to identify room problems that can be corrected at a multitude of listening positions from very small acoustic issues, reflections and so on, that only occur at one of the chairs and not at all of the rest of the chairs. Um, so if you can follow a sort of a designated layout uh, you, you, you kind of give the system the best overall picture and it can do its best work in that way. The important thing there, Neil, as well, is that obviously the microphone needs to be in the listening position. You don't uh, take measurements of each of the corners and so on, which some people mistakenly have, have done in the past. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I, again, speaking because I have the most experience of the Odyssey system, what Odyssey does is is very, very clever. Um, it compares all of the different readings that it has taken and it looks to find common issues. Now, it's clear, therefore, that there's no point to go and measure over in the corner or something like that where no one's going to ever stand or sit to listen to the system properly because then you're, you're kind of just wasting a measurement that could be used otherwise to give a good picture of the actual listening area. Uh, and just to follow up, Phil, on the, the actual microphone positions that I mentioned there, when I talk about the back of the seating area, um, typically what I recommend people to do is actually sit in the chair and move around. Think about how you actually move when you're listening to this stuff. You'll find that most people like to slouch down or lean forward or sit over to the side. Um, and I try and think about those positions when I'm positioning the microphone. Uh, one of the most important things not to do, though, is to get the microphone too close uh, to either a wall or to your chair. Um, you should make sure that you've always got about 15-20 centimetres of clear space between the microphone and a wall or a chair. 
um, to avoid getting reflections coming straight back um, from the surface and corrupting the readings. One, sorry to interrupt, one point I was going to make there is um, I used the uh, the Odyssey on the Onkyo 876, and like you said, Neil, I just I, I was surprised that there was just no no kind of like visual feedback at the end of it of the 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 readings it had taken. Yep. I ended up finding it really confusing to, uh, you know, you really have, and also in the fact that it gives you no instruction whatsoever, really you have to read some online guide to figure out if you're doing it right. I mean, that's one of the difficulties with the, the automated systems. Um, they, they, they are automated, um, and the manufacturers hope that they will be as straightforward to use as possible. Yeah. Um, but, of course, to get the best results, as, as AV Forums members will always want to get the very best for, out of the equipment that they've purchased, you need to, to really have an understanding of what you're doing. And, and truthfully, it took me many attempts with Odyssey to find a measurement system that works consistently for me, but I have a system that with eight or nine measurements, I can be fairly sure that I have a good good picture of the room overall now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that there is some good information out there on how to use the Odyssey. And um, the guys from Odyssey have actually been quite proactive uh, in engaging with forum members and giving advice on how to use the system properly. One of the things that I would just pick up on, and I, I know that we're talking about Odyssey in particular, but this is true of some of the other systems as well. If you have a measurement system that only allows measurements in one or two positions, it is very, very difficult to get a good result from that system uh, without also having a way to manually verify the, the effect of the correction. Now, the reason for that is that if you happen to be unlucky enough to put the microphone into a couple of of peaks, um, so peaks being areas where the sound is is amplified due to reflections off the walls. Um, if you, if you happen to put the mic in one of those areas or two of those areas, it can have a very very detrimental effect on the overall sound. It can get quiet, um, a lot of life taken out of it. Um, the problem is that the system just simply does not have enough information, in my opinion. Um, to make a good calibration from that, uh, you really need to have, you know, three or four measurements at least, in my opinion, to get a reasonable picture of what the room is doing. Uh, there was actually a thread uh, in the uh, acoustics and room calibration forum, well, probably a month ago now, uh, where uh, a member who was lucky enough to live in Bathgate, which is the town that I stay in, uh, was posting that he had some problems in his room. And there was all kinds of advice ranging from put the subwoofer uh, on a platform to slightly unhelpful, you'll never get good sound in that room because of the way it's constructed. Because the, the, the gentleman happened to be local to me and it's a subject that I am interested in, uh, I took my measuring equipment over to his house uh, and, well, the first listen immediately told me that there were quite some problems uh, with the acoustics. But when I measured it, the problem actually came because the chair uh, in this particular listening room was positioned so that both of the listeners were exactly in the peaks uh, in the bass. Um, and what that meant is there was a terrible booming bass sound. Uh, and it just happened that when I measured it, you could literally move your head 10 centimeters and change the sound of the bass completely in that particular room because the dimensions were 
you know, very close to being a square room. So such small deviations made a huge difference in sound. So what I was able to do was simply by moving the subwoofer, uh, you know, a couple of feet, and moving the chair another few inches, we were able to completely transform the sound uh, and then use the two-position odyssey just to finish off and tidy up the result. Um, and it was quite incredible how big a difference that made. But of course, it was impossible to do that without being able to sort of measure the sound myself and see what was actually going on at the different positions. So we're talking about measuring sound now, Neil. There are a few products out there. What would you your recommendations be um, as an AV professional that people should be looking at that's cost-effective but will do a good job for them? There are, in truth, some excellent tools out there now, Phil. Um, probably the, the best known tool that people can get, um, and again, this is a free tool, is the Room EQ Wizard, or Roo, you'll hear people in the Subwoofer Forum referring to. Um, I'm literally amazed every time I use it that that tool is given away for free. Uh, it has such good graphics, um, so powerful in its processing and what it can do. Um, it, it really is almost as good as a lot of Pro uh, Kit, and if you combine it with an excellent microphone, it is as good as Pro Kit. Um, however, that obviously has a, a fairly steep learning curve to go along with it. Um, another excellent tool that seems to be becoming quite popular, uh, I believe it's called Karma from AudioQuest, uh, which is a free tool that AudioQuest give away. Um, it seems to be much easier to use. Um, again, it relies on people having a sound level meter um, at the very minimum to get the best route results out of it. Um, and then the final uh, tool, which I think is proving to be quite popular, is the, the X to Z, I hope I uh, pronounced that correctly, um, system, uh, which actually comes with its own little microphone, a USB microphone, um, which can be plugged into your computer, and it runs a few positions, and uh, it will help you to measure quite easily the frequency response in your room. That's also an excellent tool. So ranging from free for the tools, you need to have a sound level meter, so probably another £40. So from £40 up to what, 70 or 80 pounds, you've got some excellent options there that you can use to, to get reasonable measurements on your room. Once you start talking about Pro Tools, though, well, I personally have about 8,000 pounds worth of audio measuring equipment, um, so rather different to, to the stuff that, that, that people normally have. One of my microphones actually cost me 2,000 pounds because it's THX uh, approved for measuring very low noise levels. That's not going to affect most people, though, I can assure you. But again, to get use of those tools, there are services out there that, that if if the learning curve is, is just too much for people, they can hire a professional, just like they can hire a professional to calibrate their video signals. Absolutely. One of the things that people usually find with audio is that learning audio takes a lot longer than learning video. And going from getting an okay result in audio to getting a superb result just simply takes a lot of experience and a lot of practice. Um, and I think a lot of people probably underestimate the improvements that can be made from a good audio calibration. And it's important to stress that an audio calibration doesn't necessarily mean that you know someone's going to want to come in and put foam all over the room or anything like that. Simple things like just adjusting the angle of the speakers a few degrees can make a huge, huge difference to the sound. Back in the days when I was doing regular audio calibrations, often people would go out and when they came back into the room they would wonder what I'd actually done because it looked the same 
But then when they listened to, to, to what they were hearing, it would always be quite, quite different and, and always a lot better. Um, and that was always a very satisfying feeling for me. It's, it, it is something that people should consider more, I think, is a good audio calibration specialist can save you a lot of time and effort and really get a lot out of the equipment that people, let's face it, have spent a lot of money on. So if people want more information on acoustics, how to improve their sound and so on, uh, there is the uh, forum, dedicated forum on AV forums that you can go along and uh, post your questions. Or if you want to send us an email, you can do to podcast at avforums.com and we'll try and answer those questions for you in another podcast. So we're going to talk about some new audio technologies coming up next. For real AV talk, this is the AV Podcast. Contact the AV Forums podcast. Email podcast at avforums.com. So we're going to move on and stay with the audio theme, but we're going to talk about some new technologies that are coming to market. Now from Dolby, we have Dolby Volume and Dolby ProLogic 2Z. Uh, let's move to Dolby Volume first. Uh, this technology is going to be in the new Toshiba line of TVs and is also in a lot of the new AVR, AV receiver lines as well. Uh, Neil, you've had a, an opportunity to listen to this as I have. Um, what were your thoughts on it? It's very impressive. I have to say it's very, very impressive, Phil. The first thing that it does extremely well is obviously to to, to compensate the volume between content. So most noticeably, uh, it stops you getting deafened when the adverts come on, when you're just watching some normal TV. But the other thing that perhaps is even more impressive than that is how it can compensate when you're not listening at reference levels. Uh, it compensates for the different in, in sound that you hear when you're ref- listening below reference levels. It will actually just boost it back up and you start to hear all those little details again. Your surround speakers seem to, to, to come alive um, just because the effects that are recorded and are supposed to be listened to at reference level all suddenly start to come through at any volume level. So Neil, let's talk about the uh, the volume issues first of all. And uh, I, I guess this is where it, it suits being used in a television if you're watching a, a, a drama which is maybe recorded a little bit lower than let's say, the advert break that then comes in because, you know, these advertisers always like to, to pump the volume up to get people's attentions. If you set the volume now, um, what it's doing is it's it's actually keeping that volume all at one level, isn't it? It's very, very clever at the processing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really clever. I mean, basically, uh, there's lots of ways that in the past you had this thing called normalisation. Um, and normalisation is what people normally think about when you talk about keeping the volume level the same. Um, the way that Dolby Volume works is quite different to that. So you still have the dynamics and the sound. It just stops you from getting deafened when it moves uh, from one to the other. Very impressive. And, of course, the first thing, the first question I asked uh, when I had the demonstration from Dolby was, it, is it affecting the dynamic range? And the way that the processing works, it doesn't seem to do that. So you can still have this quiet passage um, let's say King Kong, a nice quiet passage where they're, they're having fun on the frozen lake and then all of a sudden there's the explosion of the shell, um, there is still that shift in volume to give you that that effect that's supposed to be there. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's something that everyone, without knowing it perhaps, has experienced the problem with that. Um, and when you have a system that does have Dolby volume that takes away the problem, you really, really notice how much you like it. So that's uh, Dolby Volume. It's uh, it, 
it's not just at the low end either, Neil. I, I understand that um, some of the big names uh, in the custom install world are, are adding this technology into their, their AV processors. Yeah, I mean, for example, uh, Audio Design Associates, a well-known brand in custom install, uh, their new processor will certainly have uh, Dolby volume. I think when people hear it, it really is such a big change because it's so cool because it's also a problem that we've had for so long and people have just put up with um, that you will just simply see more and more and more manufacturers as new models come out. I think they'll all basically have Dolby volume built into them because it just makes so much sense. And if people want a, a visualization of, of how this system works, if you have a look at our video from the Toshiba launch, which is on the avforums.tv page, um, there is a presentation from Simon at Dolby at, into how the technology works and also a visualization on one of the monitors there to what the processing is actually doing to the signal. So it's quite interesting. If you want to find out a little bit more about that, go and have a look at that video. And another bit of technology, Neil, that Onkyo demonstrated to me recently at their product launch is ProLogic 2Z, which adds in a new height channel. Now, this is slightly different to what Yamaha do, but the same idea, you've got to have, have two extra speakers in your system. I can see a lot of wives um, not being very happy with that. <laughs> Absolutely, I can uh, I can picture the scene in my own house right now um, when we think about it. Um, I haven't experienced this technology in action, but we've been doing some stuff recently with very tall speakers that do convey height information into the sound, um, and I've been stunned really at the the impact and how open the sound stage becomes if you've got that extra sense of height in there. So I'm very intrigued to, to understand myself how well these technologies work and if, if they can convey that same sense of scale and, and it really does add some reality to the system, then it could be interesting. It could work out. Um, I'm not sure if it's the ideal thing for your average home cinema owner though. Now the demonstration which I've seen was um just with some normal encoded material, it wasn't specially encoded in any way uh, because it works uh, like a matrix system on the, on the front and it pulls out the signals that it, it believes should should be there to extend the height of the sound. Um, now, on some normal movie material, it was rather good, to be honest, and it did add um, that, that spatial ef effect into the front sound stage. Um, and there was also some encoded material from games uh, developers where I think this technology is really going to make a big difference. Um, and that was a helicopter which was uh, circling about overhead. And, and um, you could actually pinpoint where that helicopter was in the sound field um, and switching between 5.1 and, uh, and this system working, the height system working. Uh, believe it or not, there is a big difference here. But I suppose the question has to be, how do you add these two extra channels into a, into, say, a living room system? That's going to be a problem for people, isn't it? I actually think one of the, the interesting things for this technology is, and again, picking up on what we were talking about with room acoustics, people often have the centre channel speaker below the screen and very close to the floor, um, and, and that introduces quite a lot of acoustical challenges um, into the system. So by having this extra speaker above the screen, um, it, it can help to really open up the soundstage, and I'm sure in a lot of systems it would make quite a noticeable difference. 
I think uh, the the big difference for me was uh, Onkyo were using um, quite strangely we're using dipoles for them for this height channel, but it, it definitely worked um, really well. To be honest with you, I was I was surprised how um, you could localize the sound even though they were using a dipole speaker for it. Well, that's interesting. Um, you can understand using a dipole to sort of spread the sound out. Um, it's, it's, it sounds quite interesting, though, how you were able to, to sort of pick things out. Probably good use of the, the rear surrounds helps that, because then you'll be able to steer it from, you know, three points rather than, than just one point with the main speaker. Yeah, and obviously I'll, I'll point out there that that was with the encoded material, uh, getting the localization effect was far more prominent with that. Um, are we going to risk going down the same route, though, that um, DTS Discrete has gone down and material is just not available? Is the fact that this is Matrix maybe going to help help the issue when it comes to film playback? I think the fact that it's Matrixed uh, obviously will help because it means that people who do invest in this um, will, will, let's face it, be able to hear the speaker working uh, any time they choose, uh, whether that's uh, good or bad is another question, but at least they'll be able to hear it work. Um, also, the fact that it's from Dolby, you'll probably find that it will be built into a lot of the Dolby chips that are used, um, so many more people uh, will be able to, 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 to sort of have the option there, even though they're not specifically out shopping for it, um, and obviously that that will that will help things a lot. And David, you're rather quiet there, but does this technology do anything for you? Are, are you interested in hearing it? Do you have uh, room for two new uh, speakers? I'm, I'm certainly interested in making any kind of improvement, but um, the problem coming from a video background is the the um, the distrust that um, I've, I've kind of built up over the years of um, any kind of processing, which I think could be intrusive, certainly with audio since there's no um since there's well it's not the case that there aren't standards like neil said earlier it's just that maybe we aren't as aware of them uh so it's a case of not knowing what technologies are good and what ones are the gimmicks is do you think it's a gimmick neil Uh, at this minute in time there is a hint of the gimmick about it uh i don't mean that to sound derogatory uh a gimmick is not necessarily a bad thing no Uh, no no but just yeah just in the same way for many people 3d is is a gimmick Mm-hmm. Uh, at this minute in time, um, it's the sort of thing that is interesting, and if it's used properly, though, that could come into being a an essential part of the experience. Um, so, yeah, I think it's interesting. I'm I'm pleased that there are still new things happening. Um, of course, it means now that people need to find space and budget for even more speakers in their room, which is not always a good thing, of course. I'd I'd like to know actually how many people are uh, even using seven point one at this moment in time. I mean. Neil, what would you say? I mean, I, I guess you're you're with high-end custom install, but do you still see a lot of 5.1? I would say that the majority of the systems, David, that we do are actually 5.1 uh-huh. uh, rather than 7.1. That that may be surprising. Do, do you know what the reason for that is? It's, it's the case for me. Uh, the, well, the, the, the reason that we uh, always recommend to, to our dealers that they go for 5.1 is normally that the seats in the room are so close to the back wall that it's impossible to get that the benefit of a 7.1 system, mm-hmm. and you end up with two speakers right on top of the listeners, which rather than adding spatial information at the back, yep. collapse the whole surround effect. They're just right on top of people. 
So yeah, that's why we, we, we don't do it unless we have enough space at the back. If there's yeah. enough space at the back, then it's great. But yeah, you need to have the space. Now, this also brings up the issue that Yamaha have been doing this for a couple of decades now, Neil, with their presence channel. Um, now, it is slightly different. It's it's using their cinema DSP system, but um, it, it's not an entirely new idea, though, is it, to have these presence channels or height channels? No, the whole height channel thing um, has actually been around for a little while. And if you dig into to DTS um, documentation, you'll find that some of the standard DTS configurations actually do include a height channel. Um, the good old Voice of God channel is what it's often known as. Um, you almost never, ever, ever see those configurations, though. Um, and the reason for that is that Hey, the, the the studios are simply not set up with them, and if the studio's not set up with them, the mixes are not set up that way. Yeah, which brings us back to the whole DTS discrete issues as well, where we have Absolutely. like seven DVDs with, with that technology on board. Um, <laughs> so I, I guess that the real issue here for this technology to take off, uh, Dolby Volume, it will work in any system, it's great technology, it's superb the way it works, and it, and it adds in a benefit. Um, Dolby ProLogic 2Z, um, we're, I think we're, we're moving towards the, the gimmicky side of things that it does work and it, it sounds fantastic when it's encoded right but it's finding the room for these two speakers I think that's going to be the biggest issue to overcome would I, would I be right in thinking that? Well I think that you are right um, one of the things that's very interesting and I've seen more discussion of on the forums though uh, in custom install, almost all of the speakers that people use are built into the wall um, or on the wall, architectural loudspeakers. Um, whereas still, most people obviously going into a store to buy speakers for themselves will typically look at floor standing products. Um, I can assure you it's a lot easier to accommodate these types of systems when you have built-in in-wall speakers um, rather than trying to, to somehow get a speaker uh, up high um, which is not a built-in speaker. And I think that that in itself could be one of the, the, the barriers um, to acceptance of this technology. And is it something that you would look at specking for one of your clients? I would like to experiment more with the technology. Um, as I said to you, we have been doing some stuff recently uh, that does involve speakers creating height information. Um We've been doing that actually just by using extremely tall speakers, um, but certainly the the results that we've seen from that have been incredibly positive. So if there's a way that we can introduce that same sense of height, but with a, a slightly less expensive system, then I'm sure it's something that uh, people would be interested in. Um, and if people are interested, then of course we're always interested. Now, um, just one thing to pick up on before we wrap up in this section of the podcast is uh, the HD codex. Now, we discussed in the last podcast, Neil, um, your demos you were using PS3, and we also discussed the fact that um, audio was, was certainly in the high end still very much analog-based. Now, you had a, a whole set of new demos uh, very recently um, where you were experimenting with, with new things. So what were, what were the outcomes when it came to the HD codex? Did, did you find anything interesting? Um, yes, uh, we found that we didn't use them again, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Um, what we found was that, 
given the, the, the limitations um, of the acoustics in the demo room that we were at, and again, this comes back quite nicely to where we started this discussion, the extra resolution and detail uh, that you were able to get from the HD audio codecs uh, did not warrant the added complexity of the system setup that we would have had to have done um, for that particular situation. Now, I must say that these days we are using the HD codecs uh, wherever we can. Um, typically that though involves a room that's been specially designed um, for, for cinema purposes. Um, and in those rooms, you can really notice dynamic range is really the big difference between the two formats, in my opinion. Just the the, the difference between the loudest and the quietest parts um, can be quite impressive. Uh, you can still get a lot of that, truthfully, from just doing a down mix, though, as long as the down mix is done properly. Um, and that was, that was what we found, I'm afraid, uh, during our last set of demos. The acoustics of the room limited us to such an extent that the down mix offered the same level of performance as the HD codec um, within the conditions we were able to get. And I know there'll be a few on the forums interested. Uh, this was the first time that you've used a, a high-end Blu-ray player, so what results did you come up with? Uh, yes, high-end Blu-ray player, very interesting. Um, <laughs> it's it's a tricky one, Phil, you've got me here. Um, the... Uh, Let's not mention the brand, and let's just say that we were relatively disappointed uh, with the overall uh, result from that particular unit. Um, what we did find is that uh, using some of the, the, the direct modes that it offers um, really benefited CD playback, um, but otherwise it was a fairly average experience all around. So... I wanted sticking... my PlayStation back. <laughs> I was just going to say, we'll be sticking <laughs> to the PlayStation then. Okay, well, uh, I think that wraps up our audio talk for this month's podcast. Um, we'll be back in a few seconds. The biggest news and the best, best, best reviews. Best reviews. Hard, tiring work. You're listening to the AV Podcast. Join the discussion at Europe's largest home cinema website. Log in to avforums.com. And uh, just to wrap up on this month's Home Cinema Podcast, we're going to talk about some of the products that we have been looking at here at AV Forums Towers. And uh, David, a couple of interesting TVs that you've been looking at, the G10 from Panasonic, the new Neo PDP Plasma, um, getting a lot of interest on the forums. I think the reviews had uh, tens of thousands of, uh, of views. 15,000 now, I think, isn't it? 15,000 views. So um, you are impressed. What impressed you the most about this, this new Neo PDP panel? Um, well, I was just impressed with pan the the not entry level mid range Panasonic plasmas in the past. They didn't seem to waste any time with you know the the multitude of picture options you get in some some displays at that price range. They just you know it just it just, it just felt like it was a product that had been put together to deliver a good picture, um, and that's what it did. And the the Neo PDP version is just. A Neo PDP version of the same, with the same great grayscale tracking, the same good color reproduction, and now you've got the advantages of Neo PDP in there. Um, Panasonic would obviously like me to talk about the the lower power consumption, which I didn't really see a lot of um, evidence of, but uh, certainly the 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 blight level is much improved. There's a lot of people out there, Neil, that are looking for for the next Curo. Not quite there, but but the Panasonics are doing very well this year. 
yeah, I mean, the, the Panasonics are, are excellent TVs. Um, I actually think it's been a, a sort of love-it-hate-it it, um, for someone looking for a, a really good TV. If you compare a Pioneer and a Panasonic, the two actually look quite different to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, even when calibrated very accurately, the two still look quite different from each other. They have a different type of image. Um, for me, I've always been more of a fan of Panasonics, so it's Panasonics that I have in my own home. But I think that what you'll see is all of the good stuff from Pioneer going over into Panasonic from now on, and uh, hopefully that's already starting with the new PDP products. And I had a look at the 50-inch VX100. We mentioned it um, very briefly last month, Neil. Um, I spent some time with that. It is a fantastic unit. It doesn't have the black levels of the Pioneer, but then... I'm going to go against the ground and say black levels aren't everything, are they? For me, black levels are are overstated sometimes. What I would ask is, do you always watch the TV with no lights on and the curtains drawn? And in 99% of the cases, uh, the answer is always going to be no. Um, and in those situations, the, the absolute final, final black level um, is not the critical factor. If you can combine a good black level with really accurate colour, with good processing, sharpness, um, and especially the shadow detail, the gamma processing on those Panasonics. It's, it's a very impressive package, I have to say. I yeah. like it a lot. That, that's what knocked me out. And, and contrast-wise as well, I mean, it's not far from the, from the Kuro. Um, the Kuro, obviously, it gets into black through the processing in the, in the set. You know, Pioneer's technology there. But in, in with some material, the the Panasonic just looked a little bit more realistic, even though the colours, there is no CMS, so we couldn't get the colours bang on, it still looked very, very impressive. Um, did you find that with the 65-inch, David? Um, yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah, everything you said there. Compared to the Kuros, again, we have this, this question that's been coming from the forums a bit lately. Um, like you're saying, the black level isn't everything, and with the Panasonics, we did see improved detail in the shadows although those shadows maybe weren't quite as deep as they might have seemed on the Kuro. Neil, do you think the, the Kuro's doing a little bit of cheating now um, with its black levels? I mean, nobody can den- deny that the black level on, on a Pioneer Kuro is fantastic, and when you're watching something like a, a 2-3-5 to 1 image, it, it, it's great how the bars just you know dissolve into the bezel. Um, but is it a cheat? It isn't, it isn't. Um, there's no doubt that the black level is exceptional. Um, so let's let's get that out of the way before anything else. It's very, very impressive. It does have a slight tendency just to grab a little bit too much of the shadow detail. Um, sometimes um, it needs really, really careful setup not to just nick a wee bit too much of the shadow detail um, down very close to black. Um, and that is is really the area of difference between that and the Panasonic. You sacrifice just you know the 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 very subtlest hints on the Pioneer for the absolute black level, um, whereas in the Panasonic you have uh, a little bit less absolute black level, but a little bit more detail. Um, that's what I mean. It's it's kind of a, a choose your poison. You can't have both things at this minute in time. And for me personally, given the the viewing conditions that I tend to view in, I can sacrifice a little bit of that absolute black level to get a little bit more detail. But then I guess the question is, are you going to pay 1500 quid more than it would cost for a, for a Kuro at this moment in time? Um, it's a difficult question, Phil, to be honest with you. Um, the actual 
marketplace for the VX uh, is not really expected to people to just go in and buy a VX on its own. Um, as part of an overall system, I think the VX does make sense. If I was just buying a TV for my living room, I certainly don't think I would spend the extra um, to get a VX over, let's say, uh, the the Neo PDP or even the the PF series. Not to say that it's not better, though. I, I guess this is what we're saying. I mean, um, I, I was knocked out with the quality. I think the the thing that, that really stood out for me was the gradations in colour. Um, definitely the the shadow detail in there and the other thing that i did notice when it was side by side with the cure and let's face it people don't watch tv side by side but we do it for review purposes um there was definitely a a a far cleaner look to the panasonic image in terms of pwm noise it it just didn't seem to be as noisy in the in the in the higher levels than than the pioneer was Have, have you found that in viewing them neil well that's always been one of the things that you kind of suck it and see when you put the tv's Side by side, um, traditionally the Panasonics have a slightly higher level of of an effect called posterization um, versus the Pioneer panels, uh, but the trade-off is tend to be a slightly sharper looking image. Um, again, you 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 choose which one is least bothersome to you. And I guess this brings us back to the G10. The G10 is using the Neo PDP technology. David, you've had the well, you were lucky enough to have the 65 VX. Um, would it be fair to make some comparisons to the G10 there? Um, going from memory, they're incredibly similar. Um, I, I don't know how Panasonic's R&D structured, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's um, there's shared stuff between those. Certainly, the uh, what I noticed from the uh, uh, the G10, there was a, a lot less PWM noise from before. Whether that was something to do with the way it was processing um, uh, gamma, I, I'm not sure, but uh, it, it, it certainly seemed very familiar. Almost certainly uh, the gamma processing plays a huge part in that. That's yeah. one of the biggest developments on those on those displays. There is the on those there is the game mode which um, uh, it, it gives that uh, I don't know what it does the gamma it gives some sort of punchier look to it. And uh, certainly that added a lot more noise in the shadows. Yep, so um, we're impressed with the new Panasonic range. Uh, we're looking forward to the V10 next, which is going to be THX certified. So we, you can guarantee that we will have one of the first reviews online for that when it comes up. And uh, David, this week I've been looking at LED edge light uh, from a Samsung, and you've been looking at Samsung's new uh, LCDs. What do you think? Um, it's, uh, they're a lot changed from the way they used to be. Like in the, in the past, I think the best way to get a a Samsung, um, super PVA LCD panel, uh, that's my favorite type of LCD incidentally, because I think it, it gives the best, uh, the best contrast ratio for an LCD panel. Uh, the best way to get one of those panels was to buy a Sony TV, which is a fairly, fairly weird situation. Um, because a few years ago, the, the Samsung, Samsung LCD TVs, they were, they, they were fairly horrible, if I'm going to be quite blunt. Uh, they forced all sorts of horrible image processing on you. They had this, this system called DNIE, I think, which, you know, sharpened everything up and uh, all that kind of stuff. They, they wouldn't let you control the, the backlight uh, intensity either. Uh, but in recent years, the, there's just been such a turnaround with Samsung. I mean, they, they just seem to have learned uh, the, you know, they're certainly coming a lot closer to learning how to make a good TV. And uh, with with the most recent ones, you have um, all basically every sort of all, almost every picture uh, picture tweak you could want, and a, a lot you won't. Um, 
and yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a ni- it's a nice display. There's a few issues with it. Certainly had trouble getting it, getting the 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 grayscale to track properly. Um, and there's there's some quite aggressive auto dimming going on, which means that, for example, when you have a whole black screen, the TV will um, the TV will analyze the video signal and uh, reduce the the level of the backlight to try and give a you know b- better contrast ratio, b- deeper black levels, that kind of thing. Um, it's uh, it's quite intrusive. It, I mean, it, it it does often get in the way of what you're watching, and I I do wish there was a way of toning that down. And uh, we talked about LED technology uh, very briefly last month, Neil, and uh, we've been looking at the the Edge LED technology. Um, first of all, what's your thinking of, of the Edge LED technology? Uh, I'll confess I haven't seen too much of it in action, Phil. Um, it's, uh, it's clearly logical from the point of view of, of thinning down the displays, um, but it's, it's very difficult, obviously, to, to create a scheme where the light can... Be evenly passed from the edge over to the centre, um, so I think that there are technical obstacles to be overcome. Um, obviously, the display companies think that they have some good ways uh, of of getting around those particular physical limitations, um, and obviously, your review will reveal if the, if they have managed that or not. Um, so I think that there is there is some interest because it helps the display to get thinner. Um, I think it may be some time yet, though, until the picture performance um, can match up with the performance of those sort of local area LEDs rather than side LEDs. Yeah, the side LED is definitely being used as as a budget way into the technology with the the auto dimming um, backlights being on the higher range uh, from Samsung uh, and Sony as well. Uh, they're backlit tv is three and a half thousand pounds which is a lot of money for for a new tech interesting that you mentioned uh the slimness because that was the first thing that hit me taking uh the 40 it's the 40 sorry let's get this model number right it's the ue 40 b 6000 uh, which is the entry level uh, edge led tv and uh, i've got to say the slimness you know, you only have to go back a few years when we were all using CRTs, and it was a dream just to to, to think about screens being as slim as this one is. It it really is slim. Interesting again that you mentioned the uh, screen uniformity, Neil, um, and this will interest everybody because I have done some measurements, and uh, uniformity is down uh, roughly twenty two percent in the centre of the screen. Which in bright scenes you don't really notice it, but in in the darkest scenes it, it is an issue, uh, unfortunately. There's actually um, some of that on the um, the one I have here right now. Off the top of my head, that's the LE forty B six five one, which uh, it's it's not LED based, but again, a lot of the panels from uh, the Sony and Samsung place they just have this strange uniformity issue anyway. You bring up a, like a flat coloured screen and you could swear like going over to the edges it looks more like a gradient it's losing uh, luminance. Yeah, which which is sadly an issue with, with the set. Um, in terms of picture quality, it, fairly good for an LCD TV. I won't spoil the review too much um, but interesting, you mentioned the, the black dimming effect uh, David. Um, this set doesn't have auto dimming, but it does the same thing. Um, when you get down to about f- under forty IRE, it, it just wants to auto dim the image. And where I really notice it is the end titles uh, on a film. If you've got a black background with a mm-hmm. white titles, uh, side by side with a Pioneer, I mean, it, 
you're losing about 40% of the brightness. It's it's just too aggressive, isn't it? I don't. I mean, I, I I don't know how much of it is the same as the one I have here. Maybe they share the same design fundamentals. I don't know. But there's there's a there's a scene in a DVD I'm working on right now where there's a there's a girl in a car. Um, the outside of the car, the light coming through the window is completely white. It's completely bright, but her um, she's completely in shadow. She's a silhouette, and she moves her head around. And as she moves her head around, the whole TV like brightens and darkens depending on how much white is visible in the screen. It's just incredibly distracting to look at. Yeah. So. Those are the downsides. The plus sides, I've uh, got to say, calibration controls, you'll be happy to know, Neil. <coughs> Very good on these sets. Uh, mm-hmm. Full white balance controls and a CMS system. Um, Absolutely. Is- Samsung need to be commended on uh, the level of commitment that they do put into yep. their calibration controls. They're very, very full-featured, no doubt about that. Um and it, and it was a joy to use, to be honest with you, the CMS system, once you got your head around how it actually works, uh, because all these CMS systems work, uh, they have their own uh, little ways of doing things. But I've got to say, it, the CMS certainly does work very well once you've analysed what the effects uh, of the controls are. And uh, the only disappointment I had, and I don't know if you had the same effect on the Samsung that you're reviewing at the moment, David, was the, the grayscale balance and... Uh, the uniformity of, of the of the tracking of the grayscale um, and the 40 IRE, it was it, pants. Exactly. So it sounds like both sets are working identically. It looks like the same technology is on there. Um, so if you want to read the full reviews, the full reviews should be up on the website very soon. Uh, that's avforums.com forward slash reviews. And we also have a, a few other little specials in there. We have the THX certified 50-inch uh, panel from LG. Unfortunately, the first one that turned up was smashed to bits, but the replacement arrived uh, at the time of recording today. So that should also be up online very soon. Um, just before we wrap up, just a couple of things to mention. Uh, if you're a custom installer and uh, you want to take part in the AV Forums a private forum, then if you send an email to stuart at avforums.com uh, with a letterhead for your company, uh, you can get access to this private forum, and that is an industry-only area. Also, AV Forums are now an affiliate for Cedia, and uh, we have the Cedia Expo coming up very soon, which is a trade-only event. Uh, Neil, this event is is one of the big events in the calendar for for the for the industry. Um, anything that you're looking forward to coming up for the Expo this year? Yeah, I think the the key thing that I am looking forward to uh, at the Expo again this year, Phil, is that uh, for the second year. Um, Cedia are going to be running a home cinema design specialist training, uh, which is a course that is is very important to me, as I'm sure people uh, in the industry will know. Um, this year, uh, we're actually going to be doing a, a two-day workshop rather than the full training session. Um, and that workshop proved to be an extremely uh, valuable event for the guys who attended it last year. And I hope that it will be well subscribed again this year and again I'm, I'm really looking forward to working with the guys uh, on that particular training class um, and showing them how standards can help in their designs. Now some members uh, obviously we're talking industry here Neil but uh, some members might not be aware of who Syria are and uh, it's definitely a subject that we will cover in the future and let you know all about uh, that trade organisation and, and what they do but uh, very big on the training and introducing standards aren't they Neil? Well, yeah, so so CEDIA is the the trade association um, for the custom installation industry. Um, The the key mandates of CEDIA are to to drive education um, within the industry, 
um, and then also to try and, and make sure that some minimum qualifications are met. I don't want to say minimum standards because uh, CDA members, uh, their installs are not vetted. That's something that people should bear in mind. Um, to get into CDA, people have to uh, have certain recommendations and stuff like that. So it can be useful as an indicator uh, to people uh, if someone is a member of CDA that they are a professional person um, within the organ within the custom installation industry. Uh, of course, that does not mean that there are not uh, professional people who are not a member of the trade organisation. Um, but at least it's nice to have somewhere to start in your research when you're looking for someone to work with you on a very large project potentially um, that is going to be involving wiring and design of your entire home. And obviously these are subjects which we will cover in depth in future podcasts and uh, hopefully we'll have CDA on here as well to tell us all about their organisation and let forum members basically know what custom installation is all about, Neil, which um, a lot of people, as soon as you mention custom installation, the first thing they think about is, oh my God, £250,000 home cinemas. It's not all that though, is it? Custom installation now is actually quite a mature industry in this country. Um, you can get a lot of really good stuff um, it doesn't need to be uh, a huge cinema or anything like that as you've spoken about custom installation these days is a lot about integration um, in a way that we want to live uh, in our homes now so bringing together control systems uh, for, for heating uh, for lighting uh, for distribution of entertainment throughout the home and so on these are all areas that fall under the, the banner of custom installation. Um, and of course, uh, people can, can enjoy these types of services now without spending um, the unbelievable fortunes that, you know, maybe 10 years ago you needed to have to get a custom installer in. Um, now, a, a very basic job can be carried out by a custom installer um, to give people, uh, for example, uh, enjoyment of multi-room audio throughout their home. Okay, well, that wraps up our podcast for this month. Um, we've covered quite a, a gamut of subjects there. If you have any points that you want us to raise in future podcasts, then please do email us at podcast at avforums.com. Uh, we'll read your email out, and we'll also try and answer the questions that you send us. So all I've got to do now is thank uh, Neil Davidson from Genesis Technologies. Thank you, Neil. No problem, Phil, as always. And also thanks to AV Forums hardware reviewer David McKenzie. Thank you, David. Not a problem. And also don't forget, uh, while the podcast is not around but you want the latest news uh, from the AV forums or you want to know what reviews are coming up then we are now on Twitter so if you want to tweet your way across to twitter.com forward slash AV forums you'll get all the latest news from our Twitter page there. So that's it for this month I'm Phil Hinton, thanks very much for listening and we will be back next month with another Home Cinema Podcast The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.